Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening. It's the beginning of a new Alan Jones week. Yes, I am Alan Jones and you are watching ADH. I can tell you, look, there's plenty to watch tonight, but remember, if you miss any of this, you can go to the ADH app and all the interviews and editorials are there. Of course, you can also check it out on my Facebook page. So thank you for being with us. I'll be having more to say about the Prime Minister tonight because it is our country and our government. And it's time we took seriously the promise, or do you call it a threat, when he told us he was changing the country. When he launched, see, they, these people forget they're servants of ours. We elect them to do our bidding. We don't elect them to please themselves. When he launched the voice campaign, he said unapologetically, I'm here to change the country. Well, he's doing that with no mandate for what he's doing. He was defiant in Parliament yesterday because he knows the political tide is going out. Peter Dutton asked him to withdraw the Indigenous voice to Parliament and executive government. Note that bit. It's an Indigenous voice to Parliament and executive government. Now, don't worry about the fancy titles. Executive government is right at the top. That's the Prime Minister, the Governor-General, and they sit down and decide whether the legislation is going to be signed off and so on. So the voice wants its nose in everything, not just the Parliament, a voice to Cabinet and all the way up. Peter Dutton said it was failing, but for Mr Albanese, there was no retreat, no apology and no responsibility. The fact that he won't say when he learnt of the decision to not allow Qatar to have more flights into the country. He defiantly told the parliament it was no issue. Nothing to see here. I was at NATO, he said. Why can't the prime minister tell us when he actually knew about the decision on Qatar? Why can't he tell us specifically what contact was made with Qantas about the decision? And by the way, while we're at it, why has Peter Dutton abandoned the pursuit of the Higgins affair? 
How did Higgins get reportedly $3 million of our money for, I quote, future economic loss, past economic loss, general damages, future assistance with at-home care, and past and future out-of-pocket expenses? Really, Higgins is tripping around the world. And the Prime Minister wonders why his government is bleeding support. Even the Yes campaigners admit that they've got a battle on their hands. Voting on this divisive referendum opens at the beginning of October. Now, let me say, I'm completely opposed to that as well. All this pre-polling stuff is riddled with rorts. There is a day to vote. We're told October 14. My view is you should need very, very special reasons why you're allowed to vote on a day other than October 14. Otherwise, your vote should not count. And that should be true of general elections as well. The fact that early voting can begin on October 2 is an invitation to rort the system. Now, Jacinta Price in all of this is the breath of fresh air, isn't she? Speaking yesterday, she said that after she's done with the Indigenous voice, she'll be campaigning to push back against the transgender movement. Now, Pauline Hanson was the first person to strike on this issue. She was right, but received no support in the Senate. Well, Jacinta said yesterday, and I quote, in the Senate, we had an opportunity to vote for an inquiry, there it is on your screens, into gender-affirming treatments for children. Jacinta said yesterday, it should never have been a conscience vote because this issue speaks to the human rights of our most vulnerable, and that is our children, unquote. Now remember, when this motion was put into the parliament by Pauline Hanson, Birmingham, the leader of the Liberal wets, orchestrated a walkout. While ever Liberals turn a blind eye to the pollution of the minds of our young children, they must accept that they are not entitled to speak under the Liberal banner. More smoke and mirrors by the government, by the way, a government that pretends to be addressing problems, but comes nowhere near the right answers. So a $10 billion housing promise is being promoted as an important victory for the Albanese government. $10 billion housing promise, building 30,000 homes in five years, and this is how out of touch Chalmers and Co are, 6,000 homes a year. The current housing shortage is over 106,000. One in 200 Australians are homeless. 123,000 homeless Australians. John Howard once said politics was governed by the simple laws of arithmetic. Well, there is the arithmetic. 30,000 homes in five years when the shortfall is over 106,000. You see, New South Wales is home to 8 million people. It'll get the same number of new homes under this stupid plan as Tasmania with a population of half a million. What do we say about brain-dead politicians? Then there's been a surge in migrant numbers and visa holders and that intergenerational report, which you wouldn't have read, but it came out a couple of weeks ago, talked about net, and this is net, that is you take the number coming in and take away from it those that are leaving. Net overseas migration a year, 285,000. 285,000, as my old man would say, where the bloody hell are they all going to live? To say nothing of roads and schools and hospitals and infrastructure, and the government wants to build 30,000 homes in five years, hello. Remember pre-election, the government was going to fix the aged care crisis? Well, the growth, I stress growth, in the number of beds in aged care homes has been cut by half. Put another way, talking John Howard's arithmetic, aged care residential facilities in the major cities added not many more than 1,200 beds in the past financial year. 
Albanese government. That's barely half the average of the past five years. But like your energy prices coming down, this was the party to solve the aged care crisis, a decline in the rate of growth in the number of aged care beds despite a growing and ageing population. I see in Queensland Anastasia Palaszczuk stared them down. She's told her minister they've got seven weeks to decide whether they're in the team or they want to get out. She said she's going nowhere. Well, I'll tell you something. The Labor Party might be down in the polls at the moment, but if they replace Palaszczuk with some of the wood ducks snapping at her heels, Labor will sink without trace. Palaszczuk is the only Labor person in Queensland capable of turning things around, but I said from the get-go that once the Liberals replaced the untalented Frecklington with this communicator, David Crisofulli, Labor would be battling to win again, and that's where things stand now. Look, I couldn't believe it this morning when I opened the paper and saw the ad for abandoned vehicles at Sydney Airport. Have a look at this. Have a look at this. Now, I make that, at least you can hardly read it, I make that about 98, look at them, abandoned vehicles. And the Sydney Airport Corporation is giving notice of its intention to sell them. Have a look at that. 98 of them, I don't know whose they are, but there we are. There was a further significant ad in the papers, by the way, by a group of community-minded organisations accompanied by the signatures of concerned Australians calling on the trial of two Australian whistleblowers, Richard Boyle, who has spoken about wrongdoings at the tax office, and one David McBride, accused of leaking information, read the war in Afghanistan. Have a look at this. Dear Ministers, it's hard to read, I know, but the ad rightly argues, that stuff at the bottom are all signatories, it argues that whistleblowers need to be protected or their argument debated and challenged. Positive change comes when brave people speak up. Not many of them. And look, our thoughts are with the faraway members of the family of human beings following the earthquake in Morocco. More than 2,100 people have been killed. 6.8 magnitude earthquake, which struck on Friday night, 72 kilometres southwest of Marrakesh, which is a major Moroccan economic centre, a beautiful city, home of mosques and palaces and gardens. It's the fourth largest city in Morocco. Over 2,000 dead and over 2,000 injured. Buildings in Marrakesh were damaged and survivors are struggling to find shelter and supplies. And congratulations to the remarkable 36-year-old Novak Djokovic, who in winning the US Open Tennis Championship played brilliant tennis, now equals the all-time record of major championships for men and women held by the great Margaret Court, about whom I'll have something to say later. I was with her at the weekend raising money for one of her causes. Interestingly, Novak's win marked his 12th Grand Slam title since turning 30. It is extraordinary stuff. At the presentation ceremony, Novak made the simple point that no one in his family had ever picked up a racket. Novak holds one record that should shame Australians. He's the only person to be expelled from Australia for not taking drugs. Well done, Alex Hawke and co. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. It's football finals time, isn't it? Those who don't play according to the rules are sin-binned or sent off. In the political world, as I've been saying for some time, that fate awaits the Albanese government. They've been given a very fair go with only 32% of the vote. Australians nonetheless were prepared to give them a chance. Australians like people to succeed. They like their politicians to be good. But ideology has overtaken political responsibility. 
I warned months and months ago the Albanese honeymoon was over. I have been in this game too long not to see the storm clouds. And look where we are. On Qatar Airlines, the Prime Minister didn't know what his minister was doing or deciding, nor did her fellow ministers. The Prime Minister's failure to stay at arm's length from corporate sycophants sees him now wearing the odium of Qantas. Rightly or wrongly, the failure to block Qatar Airways is seen as a trade-off for Qantas sticking yes on its planes and flying yes supporters for free around the country. Not the no supporters, not the no supporters. But none of this stops the Prime Minister from flying around the world. He was asked in New Delhi why he was travelling while a once-in-a-generation referendum was being debated at home. He offered the ludicrous response that he was joining world leaders for discussions that directly impact Australia's living standards. Thank God he wasn't asked what impact on living standards he was talking about. He seems to have forgotten that his party won government on the lowest primary vote in 100 years. He hasn't got a mandate to be pleasing himself. His satisfaction rating with voters has understandably collapsed into the Qantas quagmire. As one commentator observed, it's hard to know who's handled the controversy worse, Qantas or the Albanese government. Qantas selling tickets for more than 8,000 flights that it had already cancelled. The Prime Minister's government selling hope for Australians that it can't deliver. The Prime Minister's hitched his wagon to The Voice and now for the fifth month in a row, voters are backing the no case in every state except Tasmania, despite the threats and the vilification issued by the Yes supporters, to say nothing of our money being wasted on this futile campaign. Now, in all of this, of course, the corporate world seems as dumb as the political class. Since Federation, Labor governments have put 25 referenda to the people, 24 defeats. In a state of mind-boggling hubris, Albo thought he could drive this one over the line. Instead, he and The Voice campaign are both in reverse. But on things that matter, Albanese, Chalmers and Bowen either have no answers or the wrong answers. Independent economist Chris Richardson is now saying many Australians are yet to feel the worst of economic pain. He said, I think the overall pain gets worse from here. Unemployment's expected to rise and households on those ultra-low fixed rate mortgage terms will take a massive hit when they roll onto higher variable rates in coming months. Then there's this ridiculous farce propagated around the world of net zero emissions. We learn now that the aviation industry, cop this, is warning that flights to and from Australia may soon be cut back as countries try to reduce emissions and that airlines trying to meet their obligations would do the obvious thing, stop flying to Australia because it's too far away. Too many emissions. Emissions of what? Carbon dioxide? 0.04% of the atmosphere? Well done, you dumbbell Bowen. Why don't you come onto this program, Mr Bowen, and take a couple of tough questions? Why won't you admit that the coal industry that you have promised to abolish is developing low emission technology? They're called, Mr Bowen, heli power stations, eh? High, high efficiency, low emissions, Mr Bowen, coal fired. High efficiency, low emissions. Burning less coal, emitting less carbon dioxide, if that's your worry, leaving a smaller environmental footprint. The key here is high efficiency. Unless we want industry to go broke and we live like cave dwellers in the dark, the effectiveness of solar panels is between 15 and 20%, coal 40% and natural gas 60% efficiency. So Bowen ignores coal and natural gas. Two thirds of Australia's coal-fired electricity will close within 10 years. 
closed by this mob who got 32% of the vote. The bulk of Australia didn't want them. What mandate do they have for this nonsense? And the national power grid operator is warning that reliability will be at risk without imminent and urgent investment. Coal is still the world's largest fuel source and the world's most populous countries, China and India, are going a hundred of the dozen on coal-fired power. And what about the coal royalties in Queensland? 15.3 billion. New South Wales wants to repair its budget. It's in a mess. Hike up the coal royalties. <laughs> Where will that money come from in the future? The Prime Minister was asked on radio last week, how do you give kids hope? After all, he's running the country. The Prime Minister. Suicide rates are up because kids are told we're a racist nation, we don't own the place, and they read Greta Thunberg in class to tell us that the climate change is destroying the world. Boys can be girls if they want to be. Girls can be cats if they want to be. The confusion and torment in the minds of young people is a national disgrace under your government, Prime Minister, and you are silent on this stuff. And when you were asked how you give kids hope, you said, uh, it's one of the things that the voice is about. Are you kidding me? The good news is that action on climate change will grow the economy and we have abundant renewables, unquote. Look, if you didn't know otherwise, you'd put the Prime Minister on the same level of cognitive incompetence as Joe Biden. How do you give kids hope? The voice. The good news is that action on climate change will grow the economy. Prime Minister, try to destroy the economy. But don't worry, don't worry. Shore up the next election result by opening the immigration gates and think they'll vote for you. Huh. Then the PM was asked on radio, what do you want to achieve in the next five years? Oh, gee, in five years, if you could fix the housing crisis, everyone's got the security of a roof over their head, that'd be good. Note the language, if. No responsibility for fixing the bloody crisis, but the number of people on temporary visas has risen by 730,000 since the Albanese government was elected. 730,000, now here, temporary visas, bring them in. 2.5 million at the end of July on temporary visas when we already face a housing crisis. No homes, or if there are, young people can't afford them. And it's not even a question of whether you can afford to rent. There is nothing to rent. We learned at the weekend that the national rental vacancy rate recorded its largest drop ever in over a year. This is Labor in full swing. The number of rental properties vacant is 54% below where it was at the start of the pandemic. Now in football, repeated failure to play the game fairly and you're off the paddock. But Jason Clare, the arrogant education minister with the most arrogant office in Canberra, Clare knows everything. Yet we learned yesterday that frustrated parents of semi-literate children are spending tens of thousands of dollars a year on remedial tutoring for children who are not taught to read properly at school. Crises are everywhere. Then there's the misinformation and disinformation bill. Shut up if you want to criticise the government. Albo belongs to the left, you see. He was bred into the left. And left-wing Labor ideology bears the hallmarks of failure everywhere. Employers, where are you? Silent, what's new? New rights for union delegates to intervene in workplaces where they have as few as one or two members. You get the drift? A union presence in virtually every workplace in Australia. Yep, <laughs> ah yeah, Albo is delivering for his mates. He promised to change the country. 
When he launched the voice campaign, he said unapologetically, I am here to change the country. Well, he's changing it. But Albo, you and your team have broken the rules of fair play. So many times, you should be asked to leave the field and make that for good. I can't help but feel if Tony Abbott were the opposition leader, this government would probably be to use the colloquialism stale bread. Tony Abbott was one of the very, very few who warned about the coronavirus response. Now I see this as a very big issue unresolved. As you know, I argued against all this testing, vaccines, masks, lockdowns, shutting kids out of school, stopping people from visiting their grieving families, arresting people for sitting on a park bench. And of course I was cancelled. But everything I said at the time has now been proven to be true. We knew from the outset who the vulnerable were. People with comorbidities, the elderly, and Indigenous Australians in remote communities. We knew that. The rest of Australia should have been allowed to get on with their lives. Remember when Craig Kelly, the then federal member for Hughes, produced proof of the effectiveness of cheap drugs like ivermectin. He was vilified and called a foghorn of ignorance. Big Pharma, you see had all the answers, vaccination. But to this day, we've never been told what the big pharmaceutical companies were paid. The poor mug taxpayer was told that everything was free. Coronavirus tests were free, vaccine one was free, vaccine two was free, booster one was free, booster two was free, and the big pharma just kept counting the money. You and I, to this day, have been told nothing about the cost and we can't get that information. I remember in one of the many interviews I did, Craig Kelly cited an open letter from a raft of distinguished UK doctors to the chief executive of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency in Britain. Now, they're responsible for ensuring that medicines and medical devices work and are acceptably safe. The letter of several pages expressed concern that the coercion being exercised to accept a certain medical treatment, namely vaccination, was against UK and international laws and declarations. In part, the letter said, and I quote, no medical intervention should be introduced on a one-size-fits-all basis, but should be fully assessed for suitability according to the characteristics of the age cohort and of the individual's concern. The letter from eminent health professionals, deans of medicine concluded, there is wisdom in the Hippocratic Oath, which states first, do no harm. And the letter argued, all medical interventions carry risk of harm. So we have a duty to act, it said, with caution and proportionality. This is particularly said the case when considering mass intervention in a healthy population, in which situation the letter said, there must be firm evidence of benefits far greater than harm, unquote. I've quoted in the past one Dr. Jeffrey Bark, a board certified primary care physician from Orange County in Southern California, one of many, many people. He had personally treated multiple COVID-19 patients. None of them needed hospitalization or died. He argued that COVID-19, like any infection, was serious, but that people should not be afraid. But then he said this, and I quote, as things now stand, we've reached a point where it's impossible to differentiate medical truth from medical fiction, health information from health misinformation. He said there's never been an organised effort to censor 
and completely shut down opinions that differ from the mainstream in the last 200 years of medical practice like is happening now. Shut them down. You disagreed? Shut them down. And I've, I've told you before, Peter McCulloch is one of the world's leading epidemiologists. I had an interview recorded with him. You can't do it. McCulloch will mention ivermectin or something. Shut down. Still being shut down. I'll come to that in a minute. But he went on. Currently, any information that casts concern about one of the approved COVID-19 vaccinations is censored. And the source is accused of being anti-science, fear-mongering, publicity-seeking, or part of a fringe group to be shunned. Of course, shall I say here that those who did express concern have proven to be right. In Queensland, under Dr Jeanette Young, who's now been made the governor, a doctor faced jail for administering hydroxychloroquine. As Dr Mark said, and he was not alone, quote, if a public presentation is made advocating hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or even such supplements as vitamin D or zinc, the person's medical credentials are assaulted, unquote. I've mentioned many times the distinguished Australian professor Robert Clancy, along with Professor Thomas Barodi. They cited Dr Satoshi Omura, the 2015 Nobel Prize co-laureate, for the discovery of ivermectin. Professor Clancy and Barodi argued, quote, recently, Dr Omura and colleagues in comprehensive studies on ivermectin activity against COVID-19 concluded that the preponderance of the evidence demonstrates efficacy. Professor Clancy made the point. On the matter of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, Craig Kelly has been right to raise awareness about these drugs and their potential to be effective in the early treatment of the disease. He then said, Professor Clancy, as an immunologist, I'm an expert and I expect my opinions need some clear air. Of the attacks on Craig Kelly for so arguing, drawing attention to all these studies, Professor Clancy said, it's very sad when people start dragging the guy apart. It's bad enough when you drag someone apart on facts, but if you do it without facts or understanding, what the argument is, it is disappointing. Well, Craig Kelly was cancelled, vilified and defamed, his career, political career ruined, which is why people are clambering today for a Royal Commission. On the whole a coronavirus response, we have been grossly deceived and damagingly misled. We won't get a Royal Commission because governments of all persuasions were led by the nose. As a result, thousands of people have lost their lives, estimated at 20,000, in Australia who could have been saved, but businesses have been destroyed, billions of dollars wasted. Many are living but suffering long-term related injuries via either long COVID or the misinformation of governments and bureaucrats. People have been denied access to the life-saving ivermectin, but other people are still suffering because they've lost their jobs for being unvaccinated. When I spoke on this program a couple of weeks ago to Joe Nova, she argued this was the biggest medical scandal since 1850. Why a cheap, safe drug was actively suppressed because it threatened the emergency use authorizations for all experimental vaccines, an industry worth about $100 billion. Well, now, of course, the Therapeutic Goods Administration says, oh, ivermectin's okay. But big pharma have taken their money. Others have lost their jobs for not being vaccinated and are still denied employment which brings in Jay Vidinaj, a South Australian barrister based in Port Adelaide. 
He's represented a number of individuals in COVID-19 vaccination related cases, particularly those who became unemployed as a result of conscientiously objecting to the mandates at the time. And Javid Inaj also rightly argues that this banning of people who aren't vaccinated has created mass staff shortages, especially in the public sector. Jay Vidinaj joins me. Jay, thank you for your time. I mean, we're not going to get a Royal Commission because both political parties will be frightened of what would be revealed, but I'm receiving letters every day from desperate people who've lost their employment because they're not vaccinated. You're representing some of these people. What are you finding? I've been doing this for over two years, Alan. Um, first thing I'd say is not a single risk assessment has ever been done in this country by any of the big companies, BHP, Qantas, Woolworths, Coles, or any of the uh, public health departments, New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria Health. They always default to the TGA and ATAGI to say, well, if it's approved, it must be safe. There's absolutely no risk assessments done on young, healthy people with no comorbidities that are in the highest risk of catching myocarditis uh, from the vaccines, as everyone at this point in time can agree, yet these mandates still exist in uh, South Australia, Queensland, New South Wales and Victoria at this date. People are still being terminated because they're not two-dose vaccinated despite having natural immunity, despite clearly the risks outweighing the benefits for these people and their dismissals and their ability to not work or being stood down is creating big shortages in an already uh, sector. So um, it's just astounding to this day that the courts don't see it that way um, and the tribunals don't see it that way either. But CJ, you mentioned that the shortage of staff and we know that police, nurses, doctors everywhere, massive shortages. But the damage, emotional and psychological to people who've got children to feed and they just happen to be professionally accomplished in the health area and they can't get back their jobs. And I mean, what do these people do? Uh, that's correct. I'm doing everything I can on, on our end. Um, there's very few barristers and lawyers who are working with this. It's sort of a taboo area for most law firms. A lot of law firms mandated the vaccine themselves in order to gain favour with um, big business and, and government. So there's very few of us fighting for this. Um, obviously, um, if you're unemployed or you're stood down, you have very little money to spend on any kind of high-end barristers or law firms. So we're doing this um, to help those battlers out there. Um, the psychological harm is something we brought up um, and were ridiculed for bringing up in the first place. Um, uh, I can't describe to you how mentally scarring, this has been the most mentally scarring things for thousands of Australians out there, not being able to pay your, your bills, defaulting on your mortgage, losing your job, which you love. And I can tell you nurses in this country love their jobs. They love helping Australians. They love helping everyone going through trauma right now and then they've been stopped from doing that and those who were forced to be vaccinated are now suffering mental harm from the understaffing on unprecedented levels. Uh, the ramping, the waiting for ambulances, the dissatisfaction is at, at the highest I think I've ever seen it in, in the healthcare system in this country. Everyone's been abandoned, Alan. There's no care at all for these people. And who's um, listening to you? The judges look down on I mean, them. who's listening to you? Who's taking any notice of what you're saying? Um, I know Red Union are probably the only union 
that have stood up in this entire time and they've had to battle with everyone to even remain in existence. Uh, no other union will touch uh, vaccine-related matters. Um, they'll, they'll glance at it. They may help a bit here or there, but none are coming out um, and helping the average Australian worker. Um, those who do finally have to get vaccinated who are forced to are bullied and oppressed when they come back to work. Um, there, there isn't really anyone um, outside of um, no. people like yourself and uh, Red Union at this stage. It is, uh, it is David v Goliath. I can't be more honest than that, um, uh, Alan. Um, I know in other countries the mandates have dropped. I mean, here we recently uh, concluded the trial against SA Health. That well, The decision came out yesterday uh, against us uh, in which they relied on UK data uh, and then if you look at the UK, they haven't had mandates since the 20, January 2022. Yet somehow South Australia believes two doses is still required in September 2023 and is sacking hundreds of nurses and has sacked hundreds of healthcare workers in the last two months alone. It's frightening. This, this, is, this is terrifying stuff. I mean, put yourself in the boots of some of the people that Jay's talking about. I've quoted many times that Professor at Stanford University, Michael Levitt, way back, he said the level of stupidity going on here is amazing. But the issue, and I'm saying to you, our viewers out there, you ask this question. I mean, Jay and I are not stupid people, and I suppose we've got a bit of clout in the community, but who, no matter to whom you speak, you can't stop this stuff. A ban on people working because they're not vaccinated. A young lady wrote to me and she said, I've applied for my practising nursing registration. And of course, APRA, that's the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, will be on my back if I do any public interviews. However, I cannot get back my nursing registration. <laughs> what? That was short of nurses. I mean, you've been described, this man Jay has been described to me as a young, inspiring, passionate lawyer. But you heard him say there aren't others in the legal profession who are prepared to take up this cause. This is taboo. Oh, to hell with them, bugger them. They might be without a job because they're not vaccinated. This is too much. They'll come after me. I'll be regarded as an anti-vaccine person and so on, which is absolute rubbish. I've been vaccinated since I was two. But I can see this case, which is causing immense damage to thousands of Australians. Jay, you're a lawyer. Under the Privacy Act, is the employer entitled to ask me my medical status? I mean, how does the employer know I'm not they, vaccinated? They, they, they... They, they come back to the same uh, judgment um, in the Kassam Hazard case at the start of the pandemic saying, it's okay, you can choose not to give us your status, but then you'll be sacked because choices have consequences. That has been repeated as, as far as yesterday. That was given to us in our judgment um, yesterday, representing over 150 healthcare workers. <laughs> uh, and we, and choices we, have consequences. And we, we, frown on, we frown on delusion. China and, and, and Russia. <laughs> We're no, we're no better than I, I interviewed a young lady, Jay, born in Cambodia. She arrived here via a dangerous open sea voyage from Vietnam. She finished up in a refugee camp, came here as a 12-year-old and began her education because they, they really determined to better themselves. She graduated in medicine from the University of Sydney. She was suspended from her medical practice and still is because she prescribed ivermectin to treat a gravely ill patient with coronavirus, but the patient would not go to hospital. The patient recovered quite speedily. She's banned from practicing medicine. See, Jay, I'm asking the impossible question. I mean, in South Australia, they're turning to you. To where do these people turn? 
Again, Red, Red, Red Union is doing everything they can and their, their heads below water at this stage fighting in every way they can. Um, I know uh, Samir Banga has tried his hardest. I know Tony Lik Nikolic has tried his hardest. I know um, uh, Joseph Manor is doing everything with Melissa McCann for the vaccine injured. I know um, Raymond Broomhall in Tasmania um, uh, I know Nikolai Petrovsky has, 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 has tried his hardest in, in multiple jurisdictions to give expert evidence and has lost his professorship recently as a result. Uh, I know uh, recently Robert Clancy delivered information to say, yes, this person's natural immunity is by far superior. Atagi don't know what they're talking oh. about and he was ignored in the Fair Work Commission. It is, I've never experienced anything no. on this Australia. level. Evidence has been Australia. the rules. Australia. The anthem says, Australians, let us all rejoice, for we are one and free. That's what it says. We're not one, we've got the voice, we're going to make true. us two. And free, we're not free, these are freedoms. <laughs> I mean, should people be disqualified from employment because they haven't been vaccinated? That's the issue here. Jay, you keep at it. Uh, I'm glad to have met you and we'll keep in touch. Let me know of any progress that's, there, that's being made, but we'll keep prosecuting the thing. I've spoken to politicians, all too gutless to speak. No one's prepared to stand up and take a stand. Unbelievable. Tony Abbott at the outset did, but then he's not in Parliament. Great to talk to you, my friend, and good luck, and thank you for what you're doing. You too, Alan. Thank you. What a good man that is, you see. But you hear what he said? He's a lawyer, a very good one. I got lovely letters about the man, and he said, well, no one else is prepared to touch it, see? It's off limits so cowardly to fight for what is right. No one in this country where we are one and free should be disqualified from employment because they haven't been vaccinated. Well, the Qantas fiasco is being described today as arguably the biggest corporate governance failure in Australia's history. And that, to quote Robert Gottliebson, the Qantas governance morass could trigger endless class actions and or corporate investigations, which will tie the company up for many years. And he rightly says that I quote, Qantas dominates our air transport in business, freight, tourism, and in the time of war defense. He said the nation cannot afford such a vital company to be crippled by governance issues. Worse still, he says, the governance issues involve the chairman and board members as much as they involve the former CEO, Alan Joyce, unquote. Look, the simple conclusion here is the board must go. The chairman, Richard Goiter, has too much on his plate, chairman of Qantas, chairman of the AFL Commission, chairman of Woodside. It is asking too much for Joyce's replacement, Vanessa Hudson, to be able to unscramble all of this. There are good people working in Qantas. The morale is low. They're short-staffed. I'll tell you how they got to 2.5 billion profit, and not just by selling 8,000 tickets on flights that didn't take off, and not just by sacking 5,000 staff without the goodbye benefits available to Alan Joyce, $24 million, after selling shares for 17 million and earning an aggregate salary for his 15 years as CEO of about 125 million. All that is obscene. But as you know, Canberra is virtually a stone's throw from Sydney. Two weeks ago, I wanted to book a flight to Canberra. One way, $1,100, one way. Two months ago, I had to go to Tasmania. I got to Melbourne after the flight had been canceled the previous day, and late at night, the previous day, I could only get to Sydney on Jetstar. I took the booking, but the whole show was canceled anyway. So when I booked the next day, I was reminded by Charlotte, lovely lady, that I did have a Jetstar booking. I could get from Launceston to Melbourne, but she said, Mr. Jones, you want a Jetstar booking from Melbourne to Sydney. 
And I asked Charlotte if I could upgrade. A very courteous staff member she was. Charlotte, could I upgrade? She apologised to me when she told me that on top of the Jetstar fare that I had already paid, you ready for it? On top of the Jetstar fare that I'd paid, the upgrade, upgrade from Melbourne to Sydney would be $1,760. Some people tell me you could get to London for that. I'm not in the business of dancing on anyone's grave, but Alan Joyce sold shares in Qantas and collected 17 million. Now the ACCC are investigating the company's fictitious ticket booking practices. And who knew about the investigation? Did the CEO? Did the chairman? The board apparently approved of the selling of Alan Joyce's shares. Was this a case of selling before the stuff hits the fan? Who approved of Qantas backing a political issue like the S campaign? In full knowledge that many of Qantas's shareholders and customers and suppliers had a different view. Was this to suck up to the government so that the same government would deny the Qatar airline expansion into Australia? Where are the major shareholders of Qantas? Why are they silent? Why aren't they insisting the board should go? In all of this mess, it is impossible to believe that the chairman, Richard Goiter, and indeed the new CEO, Vanessa Hudson, weren't involved in all of these decisions that have resulted in the trashing of the Qantas brand. They had been part of the structure at the top, which has seen this massive governance failure. Now, there are several ways you can clear the decks for a rebuilding of the Qantas reputation, start by scrapping this absurd welcome to country every time a Qantas plane takes off or lands. There is no historical justification for such a welcome, which virtually tells passengers they're landing on someone else's land. Passengers are sick to the back teeth, as indeed are all Australians with this stuff, and they don't expect to be welcomed onto a land that they already own. I spoke earlier tonight about the vaccine mandates. People couldn't, and can't get a job without being vaccinated. Did the board of Qantas, not just Alan Joyce, climb into bed with the government when Qantas imposed vaccine mandates on all its employees, such that, as the Spectator brilliantly wrote this week, quote, many pilots and others who had dedicated their lives to the airline were tossed aside like soggy leftover airline sandwiches. Yet at the same time, it said, as it was preaching its superior morality from the pulpit, or sorry, the cockpit, this unctuous airline stands accused of diddling its customers, allegedly selling seats on flights that had already been cancelled, unquote. Now, look, you don't need a Harvard degree in acceptable business practice to know that the board must go and the chairman, Richard Goiter, must urgently take the lead in this regard. Too much damage has been done. The board, and indeed the new CEO, must own the damage unless they can establish that they were not involved in the decisions that created this unholy mess. But then, if they weren't involved in the decision-making, what was their job? Alan Joyce might be gone, but he wasn't acting on his own. The board must be the next to go. And a new board must have a clear policy to look after its customers and its shareholders and stop preaching political nonsense like welcome to country and flying the proponents of the yes vote around the country for nothing. The current business model and the architects of it are no longer fit for purpose. Look, I think you'll agree we've covered a bit of territory tonight, primarily talking about issues that the government doesn't want to talk about. The housing announcement is presented as a victory to build 6,000 homes a year when the shortfalls are 126,000. Huh. Our Labor will fix the aged care crisis a bit like the energy promise. 
the aged care beds are fewer than they were before the government came to power. Then there are people, as I said, who still can't get a job because they're not vaccinated. And you say to yourself, what sort of country are we living in? Well, I know the answer to that. We're living in a joint run by left-wingers who are terrified of criticism. So they now want a misinformation bill. Government's exempt. But any criticism of government will be misinformation. But of course, governments themselves are the most guilty of misinformation and disinformation. Witness coronavirus. Qatar Airlines are denied expansion in Australia, but Albo knows nothing about it. And why should he, he says, nothing to see here. The voices divided the country, but then we're dividing the country into those who can afford to live and those who can't. Everything's gone up under Labor. The only thing that hasn't gone up is your indignation. It's time we really got angry. Five weeks ago, I interviewed Byron Bailey, who to his great credit has persisted with seeking answers to this monstrous cover-up of the mass murder of passengers and crew, including Australians, on the airline MH370. A giant B777, 64 metres long, and 175 tonnes just doesn't disappear, even though apparently people in the Australian government want it to. Byron Bailey has flown these aircraft many times. He's urged senior politicians, not Tony Abbott, to search in the area of latitude 39S in the southern Indian Ocean. In other words, stop searching in the wrong place. Why? Well, Prime Minister Abbott is on the record as having been told on March 12, 2014, after the disappearance of this giant B777 with 238 people on board, Tony Abbott was told by the Malaysian Prime Minister that it was murder-suicide by the Muslim captain. The Malaysian government and the police rapidly recanted, in other words, backed away to save face. But here are some questions. Why did the Australian government prevent Tony Abbott from revealing this until October 2019, long after the sham search was over and MH370 had been declared an accident and that the apparently disturbed 53-year-old captain was not responsible? Prime Minister Abbott at the time was apparently overruled by some senior ministers who were arguing from ignorance, though there was another motive perhaps, arguing a preposterous theory that the plane was over the South China Sea and it just crashed in a death dive. Even at the time and today, senior airline captains with a lifetime of flying jet aircraft were and are arguing that the notion of this being an hypoxia event, that is the absence of oxygen, over the South China Sea was simply stupid. Byron Bailey is one of these courageous former airline captains who's argued that this is a monstrous cover-up. And he asserts, by the way, I should say before I go any further, the bloke is right, as we'll demonstrate in a moment. We want to know why there was a cover-up. He asserts that the Transport Safety Bureau were directed by senior politicians, not Abbott, to not search Latitude 39S which experienced pilots believe would have been in the ditching area. Was this a cover-up to protect the Malaysian government? Byron Bailey seems to be spot on when he and many of his ilk argue that several governments colluded to hide the fact of a mass murder of 238 passengers and crew by the Muslim captain. This despite them knowing what the Prime Minister, the Malaysian Prime Minister told Tony Abbott on March 12, 2014, that it was murder-suicide. Byron Bailey has been asking for years why the government still blocks the freedom of information release of MH370 search documents. 
He asks why the Australian Federal Police refused to act on a lodged complaint against the now retired Deputy Prime Minister Warren Truss for, quote, dishonesty in public office. He asks, why did the Queensland Attorney General refuse to hold a coronial inquest into the deaths of MH370, four Queenslanders? Why? Why did the ABC cancel the Four Corners program on MH370? And where's Ian Higgins, the author of The Hunt for MH370, the book launched by Dick Smith? Higgins has mysteriously disappeared. Well, following that interview back in August, Byron Bailey was emboldened to write to the Prime Minister yesterday, Monday, September 11. He opened by saying, Dear Prime Minister, you promised a government of honesty and transparency. Byron Bailey joins me. Byron, thank you for your time. I suppose the Prime Minister hasn't had time to respond yet, but nonetheless, you raised with him the fact that the Australian government was planning an evidence-based search around latitude 39S in the South Indian Ocean. Um, what happened? Well, I'll point out that I was told this to my face by a member of the search planning team who um, later um, went quiet. He got a little scared of revealing information. But we had the leak flight plan that the FBI had got from the captain's home computer. I've written to the Prime Minister several times pointing out the facts of the case. And these uh, three senior ministers that we think um, egregiously um, intervene to corrupt the search, so, so it wouldn't be found, they all had motives. And um, unfortunately, I'm not allowed to give names out, am I, on this no, show? No, you're not. No, you're not. No. But nonetheless, I mean, you're, I not mean alone. You're, you're not alone here. This is what I say to my viewers. This man's not no. a lone ranger out there. There's many like you, no. colleagues of yours, with knowledge of this kind of aircraft, B777, who believed that south of latitude 39S should have been the designated search area. And then you made this explosive point to the Prime Minister that, quote, some senior politicians overruled Prime Minister Abbott and intervened with the Australian Transport Safety Bureau to prevent MH370, uh, so to present MH370 as a mysterious accident. And then you say to conceal the role of the Muslim captain in the planned mass murder of 238 passengers and crew. What would be the motive for the pilot to behave in this way? Well, allegedly, he was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. I don't want to get into the religious aspect of it, uh, but um, I, I will mention that the initial planning of Latitude 39 South, that's what 39S stands for, 39 South, was um, planned by the government under Tony Abbott, and Tony Abbott expected the search to be um, based there. We had all the evidence, the satellite tracking, uh, descent, uh, Defence Scientific Technology Group with their work, the flight plan, so many things pointed to that search and we thought, hey, it's a done deal and then something stupid happened, obviously because of intervention by three senior politicians that wanted to conceal this mm. murder by the captain. And you and want to know... the Saudi government... Yeah, you want to know yeah. whether they did this of their own accord or whether there was pressure from overseas governments? Well, I believe there was pressure from overseas governments. I mean, um, the Malaysian government, of course, would be facing massive embarrassment and liability if they found the aeroplane 
and confirm that the captain did indeed um, murder these plan and murder yeah, uh, suicide these 238 them, yeah. people. Mm. And the Saudi government, of course, is notorious uh, for worldwide for pouring billions into promoting the image of Islam. Try and getting a, a try like I did getting an alcoholic drink in the top hotel in Karachi. You can't. And when asked why, oh, well, the Saudi government gives us billions to be non, um, not no alcohol under yes. Sharia. Yeah. Your so, point here, yeah. of course, is the cover-up. You wanted the Queensland Attorney General Darth to conduct a coronial inquest into the deaths of the four Queenslanders on MH370, and she would have taken advice. Then she rejected that request for a colonial inquest, she said, based on insufficient evidence. But you had a former Australian Prime Minister stating on TV that it was murder-suicide by MH370 captain. I mean, is that evidence? I know. It's, it, I shake my head in disbelief. I mean, they're running scared. They know mm. if, if uh, we start well, that's why we're talking. discussing the... That's why yeah. we're talking. I but mean, I mean, the Australian Federal Police, I understand, acknowledged your formal complaint against the former Deputy Prime Minister because he was the Transport Minister, and then the Federal Police went silent. So you then followed well, up with I the Federal Police up. Commissioner, Kershaw, yes. who's on over 700000 yeah. a year, and you received no response. No response at all. They're hiding. There's a wall of silence. I've written to the Prime Minister several times. I've written to the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus. They are just absolutely terrified and do they of respond? this whole thing breaking open. Do they respond? No, no. That's their only defence is this protection racket are based on silence. Mm. You've said many times, including to the Prime Minister, that this was a cover-up. The Transport Safety Bureau yes. Commissioner was Martin Dolan. The Federal Transport Minister was Warren Truss. And you're saying that they promoted a false accident search. So basically, three and a half years and $200 million were wasted on a fruitless search, but what's worse, they prevented a search of the evidence-supported Latitude 39 South. So it's a double whammy here. Yes. Well, my uh, colleague who demonstrated in a seven simulator the uh, glide from 38 South heading south to ditch uh, just south of 39 South, he'd flown out from UK and presented the uh, simulator printouts twice in Boeing 777 simulators. And I have demonstrated was this very thing from a And was ignored. And I mean, ditching. didn't, didn't the, it was yeah. ignored. Didn't the current Prime Minister Albanese in 2016 challenge Prime Minister Turnbull demanding transparency, freedom of information? Uh, we put all the cards on the table, Albo was saying in opposition, and then a freedom of information request, as you pointed out to me in your letter to the Prime Minister, September 11, was blocked on the grounds, and this is significant, the release of search documents would be harmful to foreign relations. Hmm? Yes, that was pushed by the uh, 2016 uh, Commissioner of the Australian Transport Safety Bureau that release of the documents would be harmful to international relations. And I'm thinking the Malaysian and Saudi governments yeah, obviously had their it. fingers and in the release this, of those documents. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, the release of the documents still blocked yeah. today. What happened? What yeah, happened? Because it would just show. Yeah. 
And as you say, the liability. What happened to the investigative journalist Ian Higgins, who wrote the book, The Hunt? You've got a copy of it there, I think, The Hunt for MH370. There's the book. I mean, I understand that's it, Ian Higgins. And he was considering a second edition of the book, delving into the darker that's side correct. of international politics. What happened to Ian Higgins? Well, we don't know. In January last year, I was down doing a shoot for Channel 9 with Liz Hayes on the under investigation program for the Boeing 737 MAX, which I've flown over in Seattle with the Boeing chief test pilot. And um, shortly after the shoot, the um, Channel 9 executive said to me, Byron, do you know, by the way, Ian Higgins committed suicide? And I'm what? So I've asked around everyone I can think of, and no one knows what's happened to him. And uh, I'm very concerned. Well, okay. Well, let's just see how the Prime Minister responds if he does, and we'll talk again. Something's got to give here. I mean, this is... This man knows his stuff, but he's not alone. He's got plenty of colleagues who are saying the same thing. Murder-suicide. Absolutely, all the time. Yeah, murder-suicide. Not just Australian pilots. Yes. Not yes. just my ex-military buddies. No. But a lot of people overseas. Mm. I know. Well, Albo demanded transparency on the issue in 2016. Albo, what's wrong with a bit of transparency now? And if they documents of freedom of information documents can't be released on the MH370 search because it might affect international relations, just tell us, transparency, which international relations? Because Australians were killed, murdered, used whatever word you like, and no one seems interested in finding out how or why. Byron, great to talk to you. We'll keep in touch. Please, Alan. Yes, we'll keep it. We must find this aeroplane. Absolutely. Well, it wouldn't be hard if they take right. the advice that you and your colleagues have given. wouldn't be hard to find the aeroplane. The question is, do yes. they want to find it? Do they want to find it? Of course and they, they don't. And of course They're they scared. don't. That's Beautiful. the issue. Good yeah. on you, Byron. There he is. Okay. Byron Bailey. Well, before we go, I spent last Thursday to Sunday doing charity work in Perth for my friend Margaret Court. In my view, arguably our greatest living Australian. People say they know Margaret Court was a tennis player. They don't know Margaret Court. Novak Djokovic, as I said, has just brilliantly won the US Open men's singles. It means he equals the record of 24 Grand Slam singles titles won by Margaret Court. 24 Australian, French, Wimbledon and US championships. 24 each, except at those championships, Margaret also played in the women's doubles, winning 19 Grand Slam titles, and she won 21 Grand Slam mixed doubles. She was never off the court. All up, 64 Grand Slam titles. Margaret Court twice won, twice won the women's singles, women's doubles and mixed doubles at all four Grand Slam tournaments. Her win-loss performance in Grand Slam singles is 90.12%. On all surfaces, a winning percentage of 91.74%, the greatest of all time, men or women. However, I've spoken before on my programs about the Margaret Court community outreach. Margaret and her husband, Barry, and a wonderful team of dedicated volunteers dedicated themselves to helping families and individuals in need. I went to Perth to speak at functions for Margaret to help raise money. Margaret Court Community Outreach was established in 1999 to serve, oh yes, there are the trophies. Some of the trophies were brought along, magnificent. If you hold that picture there, I'll explain. The one that Margaret's holding there was given to her 
to commemorate the 50th year since she won Wimbledon the first time. And engraved on that are all the previous Wimbledon winners. And the one I'm holding was given to Margaret by the Australian uh, Tennis Organisation, 50 years since she won the Australian singles as well. Beautiful trophies, aren't they? Anyway, Margaret's Community Outreach Centre was established in 1999 to serve and support the many needy people of Perth. And that is their mission, food, clothing and support. Margaret's ordained, that's the dinner, luncheon I addressed, people everywhere. Margaret's an ordained pastor. She speaks beautifully. And I attended one of the services on Sunday morning. Hundreds of people, young and old. Margaret, there she is. She's just come down after introducing me because I spoke. But Margaret effortlessly took extracts from the Bible to illustrate the importance of serving and supporting the lost and the lonely and those hurting and the needy. She pitches things to families. Currently at their three depots in Osborne Park, Quinana and Forest Field, they provide 120 tonnes of food a week. They've so far helped over 100,000 families. The Margaret Court Community Outreach gives over 102,000 food hampers a year, five tonnes of clothing a week. And working with 100 volunteers, Margaret's passion and mission is to meet the needs and to encourage, empower and equip families and individuals with the necessary life skills to change their current circumstances and give them hope for a future. Margaret's work since leaving the tennis court, in my opinion, make her a world champion beyond compare. I thought you'd be interested in this short video piece to gain the enormity of what is being done. You'll hear a little Spanish man speaking. He's the magnificent CEO, Byram Cerner, and the chap with the grey moustache is Margaret's husband, Barry, son of the former Western Australian Prime Minister Charles Court. Barry's the tower of strength on the finance side. And these pictures give you some idea of the enormity of the work done by Margaret and her team. Have a look at this. Welcome to Margaret Court Community Outreach. The demand for help has grown to levels never seen before. People from all walks of life are asking for assistance, many for the first time. We've been put in a position to be able to offer help and support to the most needy in our city. Our three food distribution centres see approximately 1,500 hampers given to families every week. These are filled with ingredients for nourishing meals, including bread, milk, eggs, meat, fresh fruit and vegetables, pantry and frozen products. We have seen so many life changes. The relief on people's faces is overwhelming when they receive the hampers. We also help with clothing, blankets, and hygiene products. This would not be possible without you. We need your help more than ever. We've had a 35% increase in our demand for food this year. Over the last year, MCCO assisted over 74,000 families with food hampers, clothing, and care support. We distributed over 85 tonnes of food each week and over 88,800 food hampers were collected across our three depots. Your support makes a difference and enables us to feed more people throughout this city. We really appreciate your support. Together we are giving hope, life and love to the community. Thank you. Beautiful. She's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It started with nothing. One refrigerator in a tiny little room, and now they're doing all that. 
Unbelievable. Margaret Court. She's just a colossal lady, so modest and speaks beautifully. There it is. You can contribute uh, by checking their website. Uh, that is there, victorylifecentre.com.au. But there may be another, which I'll let you know tomorrow night. I should have checked that out with Margaret first. But look, I'll give you that detail tomorrow. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for being with us. You can hear all this again if you want. Don't forget you can listen to the program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow. You just search Alan Jones. Thank you for being with ADH. I am Alan Jones. Good night.